0: You know, it's one thing to have your favorites, especially when it comes to men who would preach the Word of God. But when it comes to having favorites to the point of excluding others and looking down at others who have different favorites, well, we're flirting with disaster then. Welcome to Study Verse by Verse with Pastor Leighton Sheely. Today, we are back in 1 Corinthians as we take a look at the leadership that was... Not quite right there at the church at Corinth, and the Apostle Paul addresses that. You see, some were of Paul, some were of Apollos, some Cephas. We'll spend some time in Acts today, taking a look at each of these men and their giftings, and at the end of the day, come away with a clear understanding that it was always about Jesus and not themselves. With more, here's Pastor Leighton Sheely with today's program.
1: The church at Corinth had many, many problems, but if, out of all of the problems that needed to be addressed, the lawsuits and sexual immorality and drunkenness, the very first problem that Paul addressed was divisions in the church. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you've been united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so Paul begins by asking his congregation to be united in mind and judgment. In his high priestly prayer, it is recorded for us in John chapter 17, Jesus repeatedly prayed that his church might be united as one. I pray that all of them may be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, one, uh, unity is relational. Uh, one person cannot live in unity. One person can simply be alone. You have to have more than one to be in unity. And God intends for his followers to live and work together in unity and to model their relationships after a family. In fact, when the disciples asked Jesus how they should pray, he said, This is how you're to address your prayers Our Father. And so uh, God wants to be addressed as father. Now the father is a title that is used in families to describe the provider, the leader, and the protector. We are a family. In fact, that's what the Scriptures say. Ephesians 2 says, You are members of God's family. Together we are His house, built on the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus Himself. We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Now what does that sound like? What is that a description of? It's the church, right? And so the church is a family. And God is our Father. The family of God describes the church, and God wants his family to live in unity. Now, every ha- family has an aspect to it that is business. We all have to pay our bills and so forth. There's a business aspect to every family. The fact that families have to take care of business does not make the family a business. A family is a family first. And God has invited us to be a part of his family, the church. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people who attend church that never understand that. And they think of the church as a business. Now, let me ask you this question. When a business disappoints you, what do you do with your business? Probably take it someplace else, right? When a member of your family disappoints you, how do you handle that? It's a little different, right? You sit down and you try to work it out. Well, when families are going through difficult times, it's time for the family members to pull together and not apart. And God intended for his family, the church, to be a family, not a business. Now, Paul continues, "'My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, or Peter, and still another, I follow Christ.' You know, it's natural for us to have our own preferences. For instance, each of us have our own preference for dessert, or a singer, or a sports team, or a restaurant, or a pastor, or a preacher. And there's nothing inherently wrong with having preferences. But what made this wrong is that the believers had allowed their preferences to become divisive and derisive in their allegiances. Instead of saying, I really like this one, they were saying, I really don't like that one, or mine is better than yours. And the problem with this is they were allowing their preferences to cause divisions in the church. So what does God think about causing division? Well, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 6, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord or causes division among brothers. God hates one who causes division among brothers. Now, hates is a very strong word. You know, when someone causes division, it elicits God's hatred. The message translation says, God loathes with a passion. And most of the mainline translations use the word abomination. If you were to use a a modern translation, it might be, if you really want to tick God off at you, (laughs) cause some division. Well, some of the people in the church of Corinth were causing division because of their admiration for a preferred leader. Now, Paul mentions four divisions around four leaders, each one of which is worthy of our respect. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or Peter, and Jesus. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. What do we know about Paul? Well, Apostle Paul was a founding pastor of the Church of Corinth. He was an incredible leader and organizer. Uh, he was prolific in his writing. In fact, he wrote much of our New Testament. He was a missionary and church planter, particularly among the Gentiles. He was educated as a lawyer and trained by the very best, including Gamaliel, who sat on the supreme court of the land. His letters are laid out meticulously like an attorney would lay out a court case. And sometimes that can make for hard reading. In fact, even the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.16 says of Paul's letters, His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. No kidding. Read the book of Romans through a few times and you're ready to take the bar exam. (laughs) Now, for some people, this kind of preaching is exciting. To see how God has woven together his justice and his mercy in a tapestry of love. And for others, this preaching is flat out boring. We're in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. That's a long sermon. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on and on and on. Those last two were added by me for emphasis. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him, and said, Do not be alarmed. He's alive. So Eutychus falls asleep, falls out the window and dies. This should be a warning to us all, don't go to sleep in church. (laughs) Now you would have have thought that Paul had caught the hint, but the story continues. He went upstairs, broke bread and ate, and after talking until daylight, (laughs) Paul left. He preached all night. Now you know folks, I don't mind when somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor, I want to thank you for your, your prayers. Um, You know, God has healed me. But I really have to confess, I have mixed feelings when somebody comes up and says, Pastor, I want to thank you for curing me of insomnia. I had the best sleep I've had in weeks while you preached. So Paul was an incredible leader and a theologian. But some people would have gone to sleep while he preached. Let's turn into Acts chapter 18. What do we know about Apollos? Well, not an awful lot actually. Some insight comes from this chapter, Acts chapter 18. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Now there was a school in Alexandria that was known far and wide in the ancient world for producing some of the most gifted orators. These orators could paint pictures with words. They could make you laugh they could make you cry uh, they could they could stir your imagination so that your mind became a movie studio or a television studio with actors and staging and, and action and this was an era long before television and movies had numbed our imagination these were the storytellers of their generation Now, Paul was no slouch at preaching, but evidently, Apollos was an exceptionally gifted and eloquent preacher. And although it's never been officially attributed to him, some of the early church leaders believe it was Apollos that wrote the book of Hebrews. The story continues. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now Priscilla and Aquila are only mentioned a few times in scriptures, only in passing none of the books of the Bible are attributed to them, and yet their influence upon Apollos uh, had a great benefit for the kingdom of God. And who knows what student sitting in one of the classrooms of one of our Sunday school teachers might be the Apollos of the next generation. The story continues. It tells us that Apollos was, uh, knew his scripture and he was persuasive in argument. He was, he was personally, he was very loyal and he was very honorable, but his, uh, his visit to Corinth had done mischief. His impassioned oratory, his Alexandrian refinements, his allegorizing exegesis, his polish and culture of his style had all charmed those Corinthians. And so his party was the party of culture. From later in this book, we find out that they had exaggerated, his followers had exaggerated the teachings of Paul into a caricature of what Paul intended them to be. And they were puffed up with conceit of knowledge, and yet they had fallen into moral inconsistency. Chapter 16 tells us that under the circumstances, Apollos refused to visit Corinth. And he was quite disgusted with how he had been drawn into this division in the church. Now the third person that Paul mentions is Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic form of the Greek name Peter. So what do we know about Peter? Well, Peter was chosen by Jesus to be the leader of the apostles. Peter was part of the inner circle. He was part of the three, he and the sons of Zebedee. Unlike Apollos and unlike Paul, Peter was an uneducated man. He was a fisherman by trade, but what he lacked in education, he more than compensated for in passion. When you read through the Gospels, this is the apostle who asks the most questions. It's Peter who walks on water. He was the only one to get out of the boat. Forget being cerebral about life, he wanted to experience it. Forget using the head,
0: Peter thought with his heart. What a testimony to Peter. And then think of Apollos, how eloquent he was. Apostle Paul, how theologically astute. All of these men had their giftings, their strong points, and their weak points. To rest on any one of them or all three of them was just simply wrong. The Apostle Paul is reminding the church at Corinth just that. To learn more, visit our website, highlands.us. We'd love to visit with you. Again, highlands.us is a great place to start. You can learn more about Study verse-by-verse as well as Church of the Highlands here in San Bruno. That's highlands.us. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday. Until then, God bless